So in chapter 28 of Isaiah, which begins a subsection or a, a little section in, um, in uh, the book of Isaiah from chapter 28 to 35, we're not going to read those whole eight chapters, you'll be glad to know. Maybe you'll be sad to know, uh, not tonight anyway. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verses 1 to 29, uh, the prophet declares, woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a, a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs right before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. It's like blackberries on the side of the road. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also will stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. And there's not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk. To those just taken from the breast. For it is, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then, the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a, little, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast you have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge. A falsehood, a hiding place. So, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie and the water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. 
As often as it comes, it will carry you away morning after morning, by day and night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as the Valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of the threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Jesus, from these words that you inspired through your spirit to the prophet, who announced them, spoke them, declared them, challenging and disruptive, but life-giving. Let us hear and understand what they meant and grasp what they imply to today. Amen. Amen. If you uh, thought we'd come to some sort of biblical agricultural college, you'd be forgiven. For thinking that, of learning about cumin. Do you know, it struck me uh, last year, I eat a lot of cumin in India and other places. I've never seen a cumin plant. That was just a little throwaway, but so I had to research it on the internet and find out what cumin plants look like. They're very unexciting, I have to say. Uh, yeah, indeed. Um, however, this is a really powerful, deep, message. I, I, you came across, uh, I mean, I, Isaiah is a little bit bawdy. I mean, if, it's like Shakespeare. If you go to see the RSC and you, um, you kind of know the Shakespearean stuff, and my friend always says, he, he goes and he, he just waits for con- the congregation, the audience to laugh, like the, no, the ones in the know about the jokes in the old English language. I mean, uh, the translators are a little bit uh, better than that. I mean, last week we heard about someone who thought they were pregnant and just broke wind in a big way two weeks ago. And here, Hermie, you missed that one. You did. Uh, and in this one, there's this kind of this word about vomit all over the place. I mean, drunkenness, and it's a little bit blunt. But we'll get to that. There's something really important that's going on in, in the, the big sweep of history with uh, Isaiah that is speaking to uh, the people of God in Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and um, in the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes uh, of Israel. And ever since King Solomon, things have, have not gone really as they were meant to be. So the kings, if you read the, 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 the cycle in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, you find out that, that the kings matter and the kings as leaders inspire 
kind of the culture, the climate of his people. And in sometimes very short chapters, very short passages in the, psych, in, the, in the lives of the kings, you get these summation statements to say, this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or this king was a reformer, did good. But since the heyday, the days of David and Solomon, there's been this progressive decline. Since Solomon, this kingdom split. There was one nation, one people, and then after Solomon, it split into two, the north and the south, Jerusalem in the south, and what became known as Samaria in the north. And they, they chose uh, a place called um, Shechem to be the place that they would establish worship because they didn't really want to keep going to Jerusalem where the temple was and the city of David and where the southern king lived because it's a bit like Brexit. If you leave, you leave. You don't keep going back, do you? Because then people will go... Well, if we keep going back, why don't we just be one again anyway? And the people in the north thought, we don't want that. We've separated out. We don't want anything to do with them. We want our own place. We want our own institutions. We want our own governance. We want our own place of worship. So they established it. It was based on stuff from before they'd established Jerusalem. But it kept the peoples apart. But the drawback for the north was that that God had sort of said, I will, I will fill my temple with the Holy Spirit. I will dwell there. That would be my residing place in the Holy of Holies. That's where you come and worship properly. And if you read other parts of the Old Testament, you'll discover how God was quite rigorous about how they were to do that and when they were to do that and to, to make sure they, were, they got things just right because it matters. But the northern lot couldn't do that because they weren't in that place. So they, they kind of made it up. But it wasn't God's way. And so through Isaiah and a number of other prophets, they began to say that you have not just urged, you've so turned your back on God. The Father who, who called you to be the people. You are the people that God has put his, his name with, the pleasure in to be a light to all the nations. You've so abandoned the ways of God that you will be judged. Now, we, sometimes we, we hear that as God's harsh, but actually remember that God's a bad judge. He keeps warning them. He keeps saying, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I really will. And it takes decades. He, lo- he wants to call them back to repentance, but it takes decades, and they're hard-hearted, and they keep, keep straying. You see, as I talked about two weeks, place matters. For the northern kingdom, it was, it was um, this place of worship in the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, the city of David, where the temple was. Place matters. Not only because of what goes on there, but it, it had become like a... Uh, if they had postcards in those days, key places would be on the postcard. And tourists and people would send them home, to, you know, or if they had selfies in those days, they'd be posting the iconic places on Instagram and Facebook, kind of like, hey, I'm here. So if you were to go to uh, Washington, D.C., you'd probably have the Capitol building or uh, the White House, wouldn't you? You'd be there. Look. Look at that place. Or in London, in front of Big Ben, or in front of Buckingham Palace, or in Paris, the Eiffel Tower, or uh, in, you know, the, the, the capital city, there's a place that sums up, here is the heart of the identity of this people. It matters. And Isaiah speaks 
to, the, uh, to, to Shechem, where the northern people had worshipped, and said, this place will be decimated. And warns in this passage, and, and it comes to pass for the, for the southern kingdom under the Babylonians, that Jerusalem even is in danger. The place that you would want to post your selfie, send the postcard from to say, I'm in Britain, I'm in America, I'm in Paris, I'm in France. You know, it's that iconic place because it matters. It's the heart of the nation. To, to catch a glimpse of this, remember that, 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 that awful incident, um, uh, 9-11, 2001 I think it was, wasn't it? The, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and somewhere else, we know not where they were heading, maybe uh, the White House. But those, it wasn't just that there were buildings and this was an act of terror and, and atrocious. Obviously it was. But they were chosen, not randomly, but because of, of the image that they conveyed. Of power, of the heart of the nation. I was uh, reading in preparation for this sermon, and, and, and one commentator used the illustration on the 10th of May, 1940. If you know uh, your history, you'll understand that that was the day when the Nazis and the German army began their conquest of Western Europe, of coming down through uh, the Netherlands and Belgium and to Paris. So they began that conquest on the 10th of May, and on the 15th of May, a mere five days they had taken Paris. The French Prime Minister called Churchill and reputed to have said, we have been defeated, we are beaten, we have lost the battle. Not long after, Hitler was photographed by the Eiffel Tower, smiling. It matters. It's like the whole of the cultural identity has been beaten because the opponent, the enemy, is at the heart of the identity of what people hold and held most dear about what it means to be French or British or American or Jewish. You see, in these places, they trusted God. They knew that God was for them. He'd raised them up, but they, they weren't walking his ways. And, but they still kind of had this, this belief that, well, he's made a covenant with us. It will be okay. It will be okay. He's for us. We, we are living for him, but they weren't. You know, they went through the religious motions. You know, often the prophets say, you come to the temple, you present these gifts, but your heart's not right. That you, you kind of seem to appear holier than thou on the particular worship day. Then you go back home and you, you fiddle the scales and you treat the poor with, with injustice and you, you, know, you, you just disregard what it means to be living out faith moment by moment. And as such, through the prophets, God has been saying to the people, this can't go on. That actually calamity will come woe. It starts in verse 28, one, woe, woe. And this series of woes comes again and again in these next chapters. The Lord, through Isaiah, is confronting stupidity. 
Why? Because they had so taken their eyes off the one true God, the Almighty. Remember, Isaiah had the vision in chapter 6 of seeing God in, in heaven on the throne. Holy, holy, holy. God is bigger than he thought. People don't see that. They're just getting on with the routine and living for themselves and kind of paying lip service to faith of being nominal and backslidden. And they're being stupid. They're putting their trust in a place, Jerusalem or the capital city, in the buildings, the rituals, the culture, not the person of the one true God. You see it in the opening verses when he talks about uh, the, the woe to the wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, the, to the fading flower, his, his glorious beauty. Said at the head of the, vi- of the fertile valley, he's pointing to the city, that place that they've established, that they're, they're trusting in. It's that place of cultural identity that they think it's here, that safe capital cities are always the kind of places if you're playing board games or actually are trying to conquer, conquer places. You go for the capital, don't you? Because it matters. That they were putting their trust in the place, not the person. Pride in the capital city, in the culture, the established national identity, not in the Lord. And to all intents and purposes, it might look glorious and strong and fortified, a city on a hill, and it's got ramparts and walls. And soldiers and armaments. God says those are mere toys. Psalm 118. I once learnt this, and I think it was in a Bible trivia quiz. Uh, but it's it's an interesting little factet. So the the central verse, and at least in our English uh, arrangement of the the scriptures, the middle verse of the entire Bible. Get this: is Psalm 118 uh, verses. Uh, eight and nine. There you go. Quiz question answered. And it says these: It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in human beings. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The psalmist had got it right. The Lord is their strength. Verses five. To six. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be the glorious crown, the beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be the spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle from the gate. The Lord is. We've been hearing this week, and I don't, I don't want to come across as crass in this, but I, I want to use this illustration to, to kind of provoke us to think of the shock for Israel and, and, and Jerusalem of what Isaiah is saying. That just the, the last few weeks we've been hearing the inquest of, uh, of um, the terrorist in London who killed the policeman and, you know, remember that? It was horrible. And, and again, it's, it's, it's so awful because of the event, but because it's right there in one of those iconic landmarks of what it means to be British. Paz of Parliament, Westminster Bridge. And there's the terrorist. Imagine, imagine if the prophet had said, al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. We don't know whether he's alive or not. But imagine him. He's going to be standing at the gates of Buckingham Palace. Victorious. He's going to have overrun all of our defences. And he's going to be 
in place and in charge and bringing with him all of that culture that we would be horrified by. We'd be, ast- we'd be like, no, no, it's awful, wouldn't we? Or the French with Hitler coming with Nazism and a photograph at the Eiffel Tower. Or as Isaiah points to the Assyrians overrunning and decimating the capital center of your culture and nation. And they will import all their violence and barbarism and you'll be powerless against it. Horror of horrors. Everything that we have trusted in and seen to be unshakable and certain about our cultural identity and and what it means to be a, a, a nation torn apart, ripped out. Of course I don't want al-Baghdadi to do that. Don't mishear that in any way. But this is the shock. This is the, this is the, 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 the wake-up call that Isaiah is saying, the Assyrians will come and they will devastate you. And it happened. 722 BC. That these awful, awful Rulers took off and killed so, so many. We can read the history in 2 Kings chapter 17. Only 30,000 of the 10 tribes of the north were left. Hundreds of thousands either exiled or killed by this brutal dictatorship. Why? Because they'd taken their trust off the Lord and started to trust in religion and ritual in themselves and weren't walking in the ways of the Lord. Particularly Isaiah and the Lord judges and speaks to the leaders. They're so foolish. Those who stagger from wine and reel from beer, priests and prophets, I mean, those who should know, they stagger from beer and are befuddled by wine. It's almost like the prophet saying, you know, you can, see the, you can see the writings on the wall, you can see the ascendancy of Assyria, you can see that the storm clouds are gathering, but you won't address the root problems, you won't call the people back to repent and put on sackcloth and ashes and walk with the Lord. You just kind of... You know, it's too difficult, therefore we'll just get drunk and, and ignore it and just deal with this trifling and the superficial and the, you know, as someone would phrase it, you rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. Deal with what we can deal with, but oh, it's a bit too big, let's ignore it. But, but God says, I can't ignore it. They're not listening. It's like they're going, la, 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 la. Fingers in their ears. He says to them in verse 9, who, who is it? Is he trying to teach? Who is he trying to explain the message? The children, it's like the leaders are just like little toddlers. They've just been weaned from their mother's milk, taken from the breast. They're the leaders. And they're kind of making up these rules. Do this, don't that. A rule for this, rule for that. Little here, little there. And they're not seeing and not addressing the cancer within. And it comes to pass The northern kingdom is destroyed. It never recovers. Even though God had warned. And there's a shift in in verse 14 and through to 29. A focus on the north and then then the gaze shifts southward 
and says, Judah, Jerusalem, take note that when Assyria beat the northern kingdom, they established their empire and the boundary, the the division was eight miles away from Jerusalem. It's like here to Morton. It's not far, is it? I remember one of our members works for um, Open Doors and, and he went to Iraq in, in the time of the height of ISIS and he was going to support our persecuted uh, believers and he said that in what, what gets, gets called Kurdistan, but um, I can't remember the name of the city, I, Phil will remember it, Erbil. That he said he's in Erbil and he's looking and, and within, within I, you know, not far away, there was the ISIS line. I mean, that focused the attention <laughs> just a bit. You know, we had 22 miles between us and, and France in, in Nazi Germany. Imagine if it's eight miles and these dreadful, powerful people. You'd have thought that that, that it, ever present, that, that pressing danger would, would call the people back to the Lord, wouldn't you? Where have we got to turn? Don't trust in princes and chariots. Trust in the Lord. But bizarrely, the prophet nails it and says, even then, their hearts are far from me. It seems very bleak. But I wondered if you noticed verse 16 as we read through. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Where have you heard that verse before? Three times in the New Testament. That verse is applied to Jesus that Isaiah here is, is holding out hope. He's holding out a lifeline, a silver, a golden thread of hope, saying the Lord, actually even in the midst of this uh, judgment and woe and calamity and the forces that they seem powerless to control, and, and where are the leaders and where are the godly prime ministers and politicians and those who would had stand for truth and righteousness? It seems that they are just being uh, kind of blown around in the forces of nature. The Sovereign Lord says, see, I will lay a stone, the messianic hope. The melody woven throughout Isaiah of the Lord will do a new thing. He reminds them, calls them back, in fact, to their history in verses 21 and 22. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. When did that happen? Well, that was uh, uh, to do with, um, let me get this right, uh, Uh, sorry, the, will rise up as he did at Mount Parism. He will rise, rise, arouse himself as he did in the valley of, of Gibeon. Those are two references back to the Old Testament. One to Joshua, chapter 10 of, of his uh, of, uh, defeating the Amorites. And one to David and the Philistines in 2 Samuel, chapter 5. Why is he drawing them back to them? When it seemed that all was lost, God raised up Joshua as, as a deliverer. 
as one when they were taking the promised land who would lead the people into the promised land into victory with David the king who was establishing and had a heart for God reminds them that he's done it in the past he will do it in the present and indeed into the future the promise the messianic hope of God He's trying to point out to them, listen and hear my voice, pay attention and hear what I say, verse 23. But it's like they've got their fingers in their ears, their eyes are blinded, their hearts are hard and oh, oh so foolish. And that's where he comes to at the end and he, he points them to the fields and says, you see those farmers and the cumin? And the spelt, put it in old-fashioned bread and the barley and, and the caraway. He says, you know, even a farmer knows what's wise to do. He said, you don't, you know, certain crops, you don't, you know, you need to, um, uh, what's the word? You need to grind grain, not keep threshing it. You know, everyone knows that, but you'd be so foolish if you just kept on, kept on, kept on doing something that's unproductive and it's not going to reap what you're trying to do. You don't keep plowing a field. You, you plow it and then you plant. Yeah? You don't keep plowing and plowing and plowing. That's stupid. Waste of time. Doesn't achieve what it's meant to do. Even the farmers, they know what to do. They understand. And not so you. What can we grasp from all this? I don't want it just to be a history lesson, interesting though that may be. That God in this chapter, though he points out some deep things, he says that he is the true wreath. He is actually their glory. He is the one to whom they should look their confidence, their security, their refuge, their strength. He is our true wreath. 28 verse 6 says that he will be our source of strength. He will empower us. If we have anything that causes us fear, he will deliver us, verse 16. Even in verse 29, it talks about him being uh, the counselor and the deliverer, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is is magnificent. The reminder for us as, as believers that, that it's oh so easy to, to take our eyes off the one true God and just follow the patterns of religion, of going through the motions, of putting our trust in, I mean, we're, uh, we're less, well, I don't know, I'm not going to judge for you, but I, I pray with some Anglican clergy in that, you know, there's the certain things about Anglicanism. I'm not dissing the Anglicans at all. There's some brilliant, faithful believers there. But they, they talk about, you know, there are people within their congregations who, they, you know, even on leadership of churches, who don't get it, was one of the ones who said, they just don't think they believe yet. On the leadership of the church. I think most of our leaders believe here. Isn't that right, Phil? I think they all do. What am I trying to drive at? Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me. Walk with me. Learn from me. Be my disciple. Be followers of the way. Let your life be patterned around Jesus. 
And that's amazing and that's liberating and that's thrilling, but it's hard. It's a lot easier to make some rules. Come to church on Sunday. Get your Bible out, hopefully more than once a week. Learn some hymns. Don't swear. Don't sleep around. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? If you're a bit traditional, go, don't, don't go to dances, don't go to the cinema. You know, rules kind of make it seem like it's achievable. What I'm trying to say is that is sometimes those I'm not not saying that uh, rules and, and things to, to follow aren't necessarily helpful. But what I am saying is if we take our focus off being Jesus people, followers of Jesus who are seeking to, to be like Jesus, to put our trust in him, to know him, to fall uh, more and more in love with him, to keep in step with him in all of our actions, that's a big ask. We need the Holy Spirit for that. If we start to say, well, okay, let me just... Let me just start to, well, the, the minister, the leader of the church, the, he, as long as he or she's all right, that'll be good enough for us. Or as long as some people are going to church and praying, that's okay. Or if I just do the religious devotion and, and appear it, but actually my heart's not in it, we begin to become foolish and begin to stray into the territory of of not fixing our eyes on the Lord, of not trusting him as our wreath and our source and our strength, of, of becoming religious, of putting our trust in anything other than him. So passages like this cause us to self-reflect, cause us to analyze in our heart, cause us to think, where are we? Sometimes it's, it's in the difficult times that you, you know where your focus is, where your heart is. When the crisis comes or the pressure comes and you think, Shall I, do I stick at this? Do I really trust in the one true God who has the whole world in his hands? Or actually am I trusting in a human leader or an institution or a religious practice seems to be one of the lessons that we learn often from, from those who are under pressure, whether in this congregation or further afield, whatever that pressure is, persecution or challenge or opposition. Why do people stick at it? When it's tough and it involves suffering and when there's no simple answer and when, when it seems like it's the hard and the narrow way, why do people stay in love with Jesus? It's because they know him and he knows them. And they know that even through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. Where else would we go? To whom would we turn? Everything else is powerless, weak, flawed, failed idols and ideologies. There is only one true God.
For Isaiah's people, we heard how he wept for them. They drifted and turned away and were so set in their ways that even when God was sort of prodding them with a stick, saying, wake up, they were so foolish and ignored it. I pray for us in whatever way the Lord is calling us to keep close to him. He doesn't hold us back. He doesn't keep us at arm length. He says, as you repent and believe, turn to me. I will meet you. I'll come and draw close to you. Trust in me. Should we pray? Bridget, you've got a great song for us to sing. King of Kings.